Welcome to Crime Time with Maggie Stan. What you're going to be listening to is a series of episodes called The Times Aren't a Changing, They Have Changed. Hey! Once again, we're going to talk about unexplained wealth. And with me is Greg Jones, and I've got a lot of questions to ask him. Greg, welcome back. Thanks, Maggie. Fire away. Okay. We heard about your early life in the last episode. You went to that Catholic school in Wollongong. You now have been at the bar a long time. Did you follow the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse? In short, no. Um, But you're aware of it? uh, More than aware of it. Um, And you're aware that a large component of it was about the Catholic Church? uh, More than aware. And indeed, no, like... You, you think back in hindsight because, um, like, I came from Wollongong and a lot of the priests down in Wollongong uh, were, um, appear to be, at least if you follow media reports, involved in all this. And not all of them, a lot of them very good men. But it was something that was not spoken about. No, my grandmother, she was very strong in the Catholic Church and uh, they didn't speak about it. Nobody spoke about it. It's... But I know, my dad knew about it. And no, because I was desperate. No, if there's one thing you'd like to be as a kid down in Wollongong, you'd like to be an altar boy. They got a day off school every year, and uh, as many lollies as you want. Uh, But my dad just flat out said, no, um, no, you're not being an altar boy. No, didn't argue. No, you just said no. Did you know why? No, nobody. It just wasn't spoken about. You just didn't. I anticipate everybody knew about it. No, otherwise, no, they, they must have been living under rocks, but it wasn't spoken about. So what? why do you think the big change came about, that people started speaking about it and coming forward? Um, I think our improvements in mental health and our desire to uh, really uh, research back, go back into... Uh, your life to see why you know, you've got um, problems you have, why why you've got concerns you have, because um, possibly I don't really know. But all I do know is that it uh, it wasn't spoken about back in Wollongong. It seems to be, as I've following media reports, very wide. Yeah, it certainly wasn't confined to Wollongong, yeah. according to this commission. And um, but. Um, and and I do know that those who are affected by it are affected substantially by it their whole life, and they need uh, mental health support. And I kind of think that as we as a community recognise the requirement for mental health support, then all of a sudden it becomes a lot broader because then more people find out about it. Uh, you go and tell your mental health practitioner about the problems that you had when you were younger, um, they have obligations to do certain yeah. things. And you can see how possibly, you know, that's the way I perceive it. I might be wrong about that. One of the um, views that I've heard from many people is when I ask them why so many people came forward to that commission with historical 
sexual abuse, why they didn't come forward earlier, because there's been rumblings about this really since mm. the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. But it finally came to a head fairly recently. And people say that that's because a lot of the faithful didn't want to upset their mothers. Yeah, well, as I said, no. My parents, my grandma, they were strong. I remember going to church. They were strong card-carrying Catholics. Yeah. And I could well anticipate that they wouldn't hear a single bad word said about the local Catholic priest. Now, I can't recall who the local Catholic priest was, but I do know that other priests in that area, unfortunately, were called to attention for their conduct. Um, And it's really sad in a way, but... um, uh, I just know that it was nothing was ever said. Did you send your kids to a Catholic school? Um, no, no. Strangely enough, uh, I sent them to a Protestant school. I sent them to uh, Trinity Grammar, and uh, yeah, which um, was there uh, a reason for that? Oh, well, if you, you, you might have asked my wife about that, but uh, <laughs> it uh, it. Really, they are swimmers, and um, we came up to Sydney, and I, I came from Wongong, I went to Wongong High School, no? you yeah. come from Victory, you go to Victory High School, but when you come up to Sydney, all of a sudden, oh, well, um, we've got to send our children to a certain school, and this school's not acceptable, this school is. And, this is um, your wife talking, I take yeah. it. And um, anyway, at the end of the day, they were swimmers, and Trinity had an excellent swimming program, and they all went through that swimming program. Including my daughter, the Trinity's all boys' school, but yeah. she still swum there early in the morning, every morning for um, five days a week, and they've got an excellent swimming program there. So that was the only yeah. reason why. Okay, but she went to a Catholic school later. Who's that? Your daughter. Oh, my daughter yeah. went to Catholic school the whole time. Okay, she right. she was just part of the Trinity swimming yeah, program. So nothing about this puts you off Catholic schools. No, it doesn't, because like I said, there's there's a lot of. Um, um, uh, people who run Catholic schools who are great people. Yeah. And people I know today, it just seems to be a, a common denominator, a, a percentage of their demograph uh, were unfortunately uh, involved in all these matters to deal with the Royal Commission. And um, But it's no different. There's a, a percentage of the demograph in the community who yeah. are involved in it too. It's, it couldn't be said to be just limited to the Catholic Church as I look. L- my limited involvement, a very limited involvement at the Royal Commission, is that it's not limited to the Catholic Church. It's limited to all other groups and yes, associations. Is, yeah, yeah, no, the Catholic Church was one part yeah. of it. It involved all sorts of other yeah. groups. Yeah. In, in fact, I think it vo- involved every religion. Yeah, yeah more than likely. Yeah. And also sporting groups, scouting yes. groups and yeah. things like that. Yeah, so, But I haven't had a great involvement in any of those matters yeah. because of what I do is very distinct from... Um, all those types yeah. of matters. Okay, now, on the last occasion, you were doing a law degree. What made you want to pursue a law degree in the first place? You didn't tell us that. I was very straight up. I, I should, probably should have said earlier, when I was a young kid in Wollongong back in the um, no, early 80s, there was a real depression there. No? 25,000 people lost their jobs at the steelworks. My dad, he lost his job. He had some trucks that drove you know, kegs of beer and things like that to hotels and things like that and that business went bust no, businesses were going bust everywhere but what I saw as a young kid that those kids whose dads were either solicitors or accountants 
they didn't have a problem. There was always food on the table there. So I worked out pretty quickly as a young kid that if you get yourself a degree at university, well, you might do all right. At least you won't have a problem trying to find some food on the table at the end of the day. So it wasn't for any great cause like wanting to help humanity or helping the poor and the needy? No. Just plain money? Just putting food on the table. (laughs) That's all there is to it. And it's very straight up, no? And if you you go through... uh, Hard times like that, you, if you can see and look and see how people survived those times or how people did best during those times. And it was really difficult times, you know, to see people who um, lost their jobs, lost their businesses, yeah. lost their livelihoods. You really got to think, well, how can I make it so this doesn't happen to me? And, uh, and in a strange set of circumstances, you know, my dad held in very high regard uh, say the bloke three doors down because he drank 20 schooners of beer. My dad say, he's a good drinker, that bloke, good drinker. <laughs> Whereas the bloke five doors down, who's the university professor, he say, oh, he's a bit odd, he doesn't even drink beer. <laughs> now, that's a true story. Uh, it's a, but it's just well, the way life was in Wollongong. I sort of understand that, but I didn't have a father who worked on the steelworks. I had a father who was a lawyer. I remember your father but distinctly. My, but my father also didn't trust anyone who didn't drink. Your father was the ghost who walks. He could sleep with his eyes open. He could. I he can could. remember that distinctly. Only in court. In court, he was the best at it. Yeah. Okay, so now Bruce Stratton and Clive Stern suggested you go to the bar. Yeah, and with a whole objective uh, from their perspective, uh, self-interest, because they were doing a lot of work at the time. There was a lot of drug work at the time, particularly Asian drug work. There was. And um, and at that point in time, and the Asians, uh, no, their assets were all being restrained, whatever they be, and um, they thought it would be a good idea if they accessed the assets for their legal expenses. And um, that was why that was the initial approach. And uh, then they, um, they offered me a position on the floor here. I might do some research as to exactly what a barrister did. I wasn't entirely sure about things like that. Well, when you researched it, what did you find out? Well, I just uh, I found out that. Did you find out that barristers earn more than solicitors? Well, <laughs> uh, that, that sort of depends on who you talk to. But what I did realise is that at that point in time, there was a big change. And the big change was that really we're all legal practitioners. And although that didn't really come into a few years after that. And um, and so that's one of the first things I noticed. But also um, barristers, well, they've got a particular skill, advocacy. No? Yeah. The fellows who uh, are great at the law, they were few and far between. Um, and that's uh, still the case now. Um, no, you, if you want a barrister, you want an advocate. You want somebody who's going to advocate your case. Now, there's are barristers out there who um, aren't great advocates. No, um, I know. But, and I love the ones who um and are and have speech defects. But these people are excellent lawyers, and they're people who you see up in the you know, Court of Criminal Appeal and the Appeal Courts, and um, they're excellent at that, but... As a general rule, as I understood what the bar stood for, was stood for being an advocate, yep. standing up there and uh, fighting your case and presenting your case as best as you can for your client. Yeah, you're right. So that's in short. 
But there's a certain irony, isn't there, that your background's the police, you set up some of these take-your-money units for the police, and yet now you're the go-to person to try to keep your money. Well, it's it's just the way that it it all evolved because when you come to the bar... Yeah, you know, it's survival of the fittest. No, nobody's giving you any money. Nobody says I'm going to you know, give you a brief. Actually, the people who say they'll brief you, they never do. And indeed, as I said, that I came from Wollongong. There's very few people in Wollongong I don't know, and I can count on one hand the amount of briefs I've got from firms in Wollongong. But aside from all that, it's you know, survival. You've got to put yourself out there, and you've got to say, "Well, I've got a pretty fair idea about this area of law." Yeah, and. This is what I do, but it's not unusual uh, for myself. No, not I suppose. You, know, you think about people like Lloyd Babb. Um, he's uh, not before he was the director. He was at the private bar, but before he was at the private bar, he was a solicitor with the DPP for a number of years. Yeah. Um, so to go from one way to the other, and and also think though, it's um, you see it happen fairly regularly, um, even. Fairly recently, I, I think there's a very well-known um, uh, defence counsel now, Margaret Canine. Well, she was a leading Crown prosecutor for many years. Yes. And now she's a defence counsel. It really doesn't matter whether you're prosecution or defence. No. As a barrister, you get your brief, you do your job. Um, not many people know that I've done it. I've got a few briefs here um, for the prosecution. So um, you take your brief as long as you're not in a conflict. Mm. do the job as best you can, finish the job and move on to the next one. All right. Let's go to the legislation. You said the first Act came about in 1987, then there was another one in 1990. Over the years, what changes have you seen in the legislation? All right. And this is the big change. This is... There were two really, really big changes. The first big change occurred in the in the proceeds of crime side of things, and that is civil-based forfeiture. Now, right. the, the Drug Trafficking and Civil Proceedings yes. Act of 1990, which became the Criminal Assets Recovery Act, that was the first big change. All right, explain what that means. Well, I think in our last talk we spoke about uh, the early acts, yes. the Proceeds of Crime Act 1987, the Confiscation of Proceeds of Crime Act 1989, which is a state act. Yeah. They were conviction-based. Yes. And that was the focus. And so you had to get a criminal conviction first before you could proceed to get a forfeiture of a person's assets. Yeah. Here, under the Criminal Assets Recovery Act 1990, which the Proceeding Act was the Drug Trafficking Civil Proceedings Act of 1990, and the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002... They don't need a conviction. They just need to satisfy a court on balanced probabilities that you've been involved in a crime. It doesn't necessarily even need to be the crime that you've been charged with. And give us an example. Give you an example. Okay, and I'll give you an exact example of a case. D'Agostino, decision of Justice Sperling, unreported some years ago now. And D'Agostino was alleged to be involved in drug-related matters. Not a problem. However, D'Agostino had a conviction for larceny. Larceny carries five years or greater right. under the Criminal Assets Recovery Act. 
It can commence proceedings against you if you're involved in a serious crime-related activity that carries five years or greater. They proceeded against D'Agostino and succeeded on the basis that D'Agostino had a conviction for larceny. Right. So you can see, and Justice Sperling went to some lengths because he didn't know about the drug side because the drug side was never established. But the, the Crime Commission said, we don't need to establish the drug side. We have a conviction for larceny. And Justice Spelling said, yeah, you're exactly right. And I, I think he made comment towards the end of his judgment, or it might have been at the start, possibly towards the end, he said, well, look, this is something Parliament needs to look at. Well, Parliament's looked at it all right, and indeed the various Parliaments have looked at it, and they've expanded that to such a point that it's actually written in the Criminal Assets Recovery Act that you can be acquitted of the charges which you've been charged with and still be found guilty of having committed a serious crime-related activity. Remember that? So a jury of your peers can say not guilty, yet under the Criminal Assets Recovery Act, you can still be found guilty of a serious crime-related activity. How? Well, how? Well, the Commission would then go to court, go up to the Supreme Court before a single judge, not before a jury and provided they can satisfy that single judge on balanced probabilities that you've been involved in a serious crime-related activity, then... Well, give us an example of what what would a serious crime-related activity be. A serious crime-related activity is... It's defined under the Act, but it's essentially any activity, it's very very broad, that has a a penalty of five years or greater. So, um, for example, if... You're up on a large commercial quantity of drugs. Yeah. That carries a 20-year penalty. That's very, very serious. Yes. But you've been acquitted of that. Yeah, but you've been acquitted of that. But say in the process, it's ascertained because the Crime Commission comes along and they get all your paperwork and you've applied to the bank for a loan. Okay? And in your application, you misstated, no, you exaggerated your income. No, so you can... Don't get the money. Not an unusual thing for people uh, to indeed. do. Indeed. We're recorded in that recent Royal Commission. Yes. Well, that's a criminal offence. Carries five years or greater. Goodbye assets. So the Criminal Assets Recovery has application. But it gets even better from the Crime Commission's perspective because it's conceivable that the funds that you've obtained by virtue of your crime have been illegally acquired. So there becomes the prospect that you might forfeit your property because you've obtained it by unlawful means. By the false application. By the false application. So you can see how you've been acquitted of drug charges but lost your house. What's the best way to protect yourself from that? Well, the only way that you can deal with these things is, and I I say this to everybody, and it's no mystery, we live here in Australia in a very, very highly regulated system. And you must meet compliance. Now, as it says, it's compliance with all government agencies, whether it be tax, whether it be Austrac, whether it be ASIC, doesn't matter what it is, you need to meet compliance because it's that compliance which will see you clear 
of any prosecution. Now, it may well be that uh, there are other matters that have to be considered. For example, the Crime Commission, they've got the ability, even if you show that your assets are lawfully acquired, to still um, seek access to your assets to pay, for example, a proceeds assessment order. So it may well be that you can prove your assets are lawfully acquired, but still lose them all because you were involved in a drug transaction worth $100,000. So that might be the case. But your first starting point for anybody is to ensure that you've met compliance. Right. Because, and it's the same for all of us. Um, We use accountants every day of the week. Yeah. And one of the reasons we do that is if one of these regulatory agencies come along, such as the tax office, your first reference point is to your accountant. Speak to my accountant. and, Mm. And then the process commences from there. So it's so important as you consider your financial position and what you're doing to meet compliance. Because if you haven't met compliance, you're going to have problems from the start. That act that you were talking about, the Criminal Assets Recovery Act, now has been amended yet again, and it's the Criminal Assets Recovery Amendment Unexplained Wealth Bill of 2022. What's the change there? Well, funny enough, not a lot of change in the whole scheme because Section 28A, it's it's broadened Section 28A. The Criminal Assets Recovery Act has effectively three means or three ways by which they can get your assets. You can get forfeiture of your assets under Section 22. If they can establish on balance probabilities you've been involved in a crime, they can get a proceeds assessment order against you under Section 27. Or, and it's been in existence now for a number of years, Section 28A, and that is the unexplained wealth provisions. And the bill expands those provisions, as I understand it. I haven't read it in any great detail. But, and so it's a bit of a misconception, but unexplained wealth has been there for since Section 28A was uh, put into the Criminal Assets Recovery Act some years ago now. And it's just getting broader and broader. But it's like all the proceeds of crime legislation. Um, they keep on... Uh, fine-tuning it and fine-tuning it and fine-tuning it to make it far more effective for the government to access a person's assets for, one a better term, ill-gotten gains. But it might not be ill-gotten gains. Now, it's conceivable that no, somebody can win lotto tomorrow in a ticket given to them, totally lawfully acquired, yet lose every cent because of unexplained wealth, or because of a proceeds assessment order. So it's the broadness of the legislation and the way it's um, operated uh, really is the key to unexplained wealth. And uh, as I perceive it, it's just getting broader and broader and broader to a point where uh, if it can be established by a a reason suspicion, Section 28A, or on balance probabilities you've been involved in a crime, that um, no, the relevant provisions of uh, Section 28 are going to have application to you. And therefore, your first port of call is satisfying no, the Crime Commission or whoever's prosecuting you under that Act that you have met compliance and then you've got to throw, go through a number of procedures after that. So what you're really saying is that they keep 
broadening the legislation to make it almost impossible for you not to be caught by it? Um, certainly, if you can't, if your starting point is you can't meet compliance, no, for example, uh, you haven't lodged tax, um, no, you haven't lodged your uh, relevant affairs with ASIC, um, no, you haven't met compliance with Austrac, it makes it tremendously, tremendously difficult to then defend. But the you way. still can defend something. You still can. It's so just, you don't have to return to Wollongong just yet. It's, it's just all the, it's all the more difficult, indeed. Uh, and and again, a, a key to that, a key to actually d- defending a matter, any of these matters these days, is getting not only a competent legal team, but getting a competent team. And that team, in my view, must include um, an expert accountant and particularly an expert auditor or a chartered accountant, somebody who can really address and focus upon compliance and compliance issues. But you're not suggesting that a person that's been charged goes out and gets their own accountant. Sure, don't they need a lawyer first? Um, my, they, they certainly do. And they, they do that for a number of other reasons. Right. Um, one of the primary reasons is that uh, the lawyer contracts the accountant and then any dealings between all suffers privilege right because it's very important to retain your privilege as you go along and you do these things because that's one of the few benefits you get even though you know, if you deal with for example the new south wales crime commission act uh, there's a serious question mark over whether no, legal professional privilege has any role to play under those acts but that's a whole different issue sure, in itself sure but uh, certainly the you've starting point is getting yourself a competent legal team and the starting point for that competent legal team is getting competent accounting help and preferably that of a registered order or a chartered accountant. What do you say to those people that no doubt have walked into this room that I'm sitting in now with solicitors who don't practice in this area and certainly people have walked into my office who say oh I got charged and yes I've been convicted but now I've got this crime commission matter and my my question to that is well why wasn't that dealt with before? Well certainly and some it's really wise to deal with some of the some of the matters that really wise to deal with before the criminal proceedings. Actually, there's uh, an immense amount of wisdom in dealing with uh, a lot of those matters uh, prior to any criminal proceedings uh, being finalised. Um, others, uh, there's wisdom in letting the criminal proceedings complete, particularly if it's uh, limited. If the case is limited to, say, for example whether there should be a, a drug proceeds order. And it may well be that all the evidence will be borne out in the criminal case and uh, it doesn't make sense to then, say, for example, have a trial in the district court where all the relevant propositions are going to be argued out at that trial and then to have, uh, say, do that beforehand in the Supreme Court because you've got to remember the proceedings on the Criminal Assets Recovery Act are strictly conducted in the Supreme Court. There's no provision to have them conducted in the in the district court. So it really, in a, in a commercial sense and realistic sense, for some cases, it might be better to 
deal with your Criminal Assets Recovery Act proceedings prior to your criminal trial. For some matters, it might be more appropriate to deal with them after. It all depends. You've got to look at it and there's a whole range of considerations you've got to put into play. Can you still get your legal fees paid for out of your assets? Yeah. <clears throat> under some acts you can. Under some acts uh, it's not available there and uh, they force you through the legal aid process. It is dependent upon a whole range of facts But and legal issues. aid won't give you legal aid if you've got crime commission matters. No, and, and indeed you've got to exhaust your rights under the Criminal Assets Recovery Act, and there are rights there to exhaust. Once they're exhausted, then sure enough, you can say, I'm impecunious, and even though your assets are still restrained, mm. um, because you've got to fit within a whole range of uh, requirements under the Acts to be able to access your assets uh, to use for your legal expenses. So again, you've just got to go through each case on its own merits to see whether that occurs. And if you do need to exhaust your processes, you do that. You exhaust your processes to ensure that a person's represented because it's one of really the hallmarks of our system is that a person is permitted to have representation. And um, and that's one of the objectives of the legislation. Will it ever... Do you think that it will ever come to the point where this legislation, which is commonly known as the Star Chamber and draconian legislation, will get to the point that you're not allowed representation? Um, at the well, this is where you've you've fused two propositions there. See the the relevant commissions, commissions of inquiry, and they have commissions of inquiry in every state of Australia, as I understand. Um, and they have the power to do uh, conduct inquiries yeah. or examinations and, like you said, uh, the star chamber. Yeah. Now, that's dealing with the commission and their powers. Independent of that, for example, in New South Wales, the Crime Commission effectively, as I perceive it, has two limbs. It has the term usually, the star chamber limb, yeah. where they conduct all their inquiries their examinations and the like. And the other limb is its proceeds of crime limb. And that's quite separate. And they conduct their examinations in the Supreme Court. So you've sort of like fused a couple of propositions there. Um, I think it's important to keep them separate. I do know that the um, relevant bodies who conduct this legislation uh, go to some great lengths to ensure that they are separated. Yeah. And then moving on to your next step, well, people are are not represented. Well, it may well be that under the relevant legislation where they the commissions, relevant commissions conduct their inquiries, that there isn't representation there for whatever reason. But that is something that um, their legislation provides for, and that might be the case. In respect to proceeds of crime matters... It really shouldn't be the case when you have a look at all the relevant uh, statutory regimes, both in the Commonwealth and state, that a person shouldn't or couldn't be represented yeah. at some point in time. It's just you've got to go through a number of uh, tests to determine whether that whether you can access your own assets right. or whether you've got to fall back upon the, the very limited legal aid purse. Well, that's good to know you don't have to go back to Wollongong. Let's end with one of the interesting cases that you've done in over the years that 
yeah, well, just tell us an interesting case where people might understand how maybe they should have taken advice. Well, um, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to go back to specific cases and you think about it because it's uh, a really it becomes really difficult to try and endeavour to look in at people's particular cases with hindsight. Hindsight's such a great thing, and sure. in law, no hindsight's just it should never be looked at. Mm. But I can give examples of two matters. One's currently existing before the court, so I can't say a real lot about it. But I suggested to the people in that particular case that on receipt of the restraining order, so at a very, very early point in the proceedings, once I looked at it and realised that there were substantial compliance issues, that that matter should settle really, really quickly. By settling, Greg means that there should be an agreement reached, oh. they forfeit some money and everyone goes home. Just like every litigation, you approach the other side and you propose a resolution. Yeah. And you've got to make it sufficiently attractive. And uh, anyway, that matter resolved at that very early point in time. It didn't even get past uh, the issue of the restraining order. I don't think the, the government even had time to lodge the caveats. Right. Other people are a bit different. Uh, they, they're seated where you are and they're adamant that they've never done anything wrong and you, you've taken through all the various tests. No? Because your, your starting point is, well, look does the relevant body have a reasonable suspicion that you've been involved in a crime? Now, despite the fact that you can read the facts and it's fairly obvious that there's a reasonable suspicion, if that person instructs you that, no, there is no reasonable suspicion, I've never been involved in a crime and there's just no reasonable suspicion at all, well, we're a creature of our instructions. We've got to accept that. Now, you might provide them every bit of advice you can possibly summons up to say, look, I think there's a reasonable suspicion and the solicitor might say the same thing. But if they're adamant that they've never been involved in a crime, not even to that low standard, yeah. we've got to go and conduct the case. And then, as a general rule, it never gets better. And they are far too many in number. Yeah. Well, thank you, Greg. That's um, been very interesting. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity to have a chat with you. As I said, I've worked with yourself and your firm for, well, probably the best part since I've been to the bar. Yeah. You, you reminded me that that one case I spoke about earlier, uh, that uh, Stratton and Stern, uh, that was a matter for George Sten and Co. Yes, it was. And I can distinctly call your dad because I, I remember going down to the trial. That's why I said I called him the Phantom <laughs> because he slept with his eyes open for the whole three weeks. And uh, I was amazed about him. Good person, you did. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Maggie.